1776, in the aftermath of the bloody confrontations at Lexington and Concord, an anonymously authored pamphlet appeared under the imprint of Philadelphia publisher Robert Bell. Titled Common Sense, the essay presented the case for American independence. Plainly written and unforgiving in its critique of the British crown, Common Sense would light a fire under the American people, selling hundreds of thousands of copies and quickly becoming, quote, the most incendiary and popular pamphlet of the entire revolutionary era. The work would convince weary colonists still committed to reconciliation with the British that, quote, tis time to part with the crown. And it would make its author, the English corset maker Thomas Paine, one of the most admired and influential thinkers of the revolutionary period. In Common Sense and the American Crisis Papers, pamphlets written during the Revolutionary War to maintain morale and remind Americans why they were fighting, Paine was indefatigable in his case for democracy and equality. Paine swore off inheritance rights and the supposed distinction in natural ability between rich and poor. Arguing people were, quote, originally equal in order of creation. In the words of the historian Harvey J.K., Paine endowed the American experience with democratic impulses and aspirations, effectively radicalizing the colonial American public. Paine's time in America would find him becoming one of history's great proponents of liberty, equality, and democracy. Paine's subsequent writings would stretch far beyond the borders of the new nation and the subject of self-government. In Rights of Man, 1791, a defense of the French Revolution, Paine articulated the first vision of a social insurance policy to end poverty and deliver all citizens' well-being as a personal right. Paine notes that, quote, man did not enter into society to become worse than he was before, nor to have fewer rights than he had before, but to have those rights better secured. To secure those rights, Paine's calls for government payments to every poor family, with additional funds going to families with children, old age pensions to render the elderly's condition comfortable, funding for children's education as well as teaching supplies, including paper and spelling books, and additional state funds for people facing major life changes, newlyweds, those welcoming a new child into the world, and those saying goodbye to loved ones. Rounding out this vision of the well-being state, Payne calls for living wages for all and, quote, employment at all times for the casual poor. In a later work, Agrarian Justice, 1797, Paine develops the powerful idea that political freedom and economic freedom were, quote, mutually interdependent, for economic freedom served to assure equality of opportunity and results. In other words, political freedom required freedom from want. The, the means to economic freedom, Paine argued, was progressive taxation. In both Rights of Man and Agrarian Justice, Paine makes the case that democratic societies have a responsibility to their people to mitigate inequality by taxing the rich and creating a system of social insurance that provides all with a socially determined and acceptable minimum. Nobody should be allowed to fall through the cracks that permeate our lives. As Payne recognized, there is nothing natural about poverty. Quote, It is wrong to say God made both rich and poor, he writes in Agrarian Justice. Inequality was a creation of society's contingent organization. To rid the landscape of poverty, Paine proposed that the government should pay all people in the polis a citizen's dividend, that is a form of basic income, 
In agrarian justice, he also produced, proposed a universal grant for young people and universal pensions to the elderly, setting the groundwork for what was to become Social Security. For Payne, this was not charity to address destitution. It was what democratic societies owed their citizens to ensure that the collective benefit of society were shared equitably and no one was left behind. In the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, um, this is Rob, and this is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. Um, what I just, uh, I read a, um, a passage from Mark, Professor Mark Paul's book, The Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights. Uh, we will be speaking to Professor Paul uh, later this month uh, about his book, but today I'm just over the moon to introduce um, someone who I think we're going to talk a lot about, um, The Ends of Freedom. Um, Marianne Williamson is an author and an activist and a Democratic uh, presidential candidate, and I want to welcome her to the Highlands Bunker podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's very exciting um, for me personally. Um, Michael Brooks uh, was a commentator uh, and a, a podcaster, and uh, about four years ago, I guess, before he passed away, he he mentioned that the one person in the in the race that he would uh, want to have a discussion with, other than Bernie, of course, uh, was Marianne Williamson. And I don't think he ever did. And now I get the opportunity to. So I'm very, very happy um, to have you join. Well, thank you. I feel I missed something obviously um, deeply important by not yeah. a chance for conversation with Michael Brooks. But um, yeah, there, there's a, there's an army of us out here, and we're gonna we're gonna keep that um, that movement alive uh, for sure. So thank you, and I try to keep his spirit alive as well. Now that I know what his spirit is, right? Yeah. Um, but we, before we get to the spirit part, which I do want to talk about, and he would have wanted to talk about as well, um, I did want you to sort of talk about the foundation of your campaign being based on the realization of FDR's four freedoms, the 21st century economic bill of rights. And, and if you can talk a little bit about, as president, how you think we could move the ball forward um, to realize um, some of the things that are just discussed. Well, I agree with everything that you just uh, read from Professor Paul. And I think the essence of it is that you cannot separate economic freedom from political freedom. And that's why an economic bill of rights. That's why, of course, Roosevelt talked about the four freedoms being not only the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, but the freedom from want and the freedom from fear. And to me, that's everything that Tom, that Thomas Paine talked about and wrote about, how we need him now. But we have him. We have those ideas. It's just that the system as it now exists, has trained us to limit our political imaginations. Uh, Thomas Paine was the author of the primary radicalism of the American experiment. And we need that radicalism now. We need that rambunctiousness now. And it sort of breaks my heart to see more of that um, on the right. And I think you and I would probably agree wrongly directed and too little of it on, on the left, too little of us um, too few of us who are claiming the political possibilities that emerge from that kind of worldview. So my campaign emerges from that space, the realization that not only um, is that economic 
shackling, that economic imprisonment within limited circumstances, something that you cannot ignore while you go on talking about political freedom, but also it actually means that a human being is not free in such circumstances. Franklin Roosevelt said a necessitous man is not a free man. And also, I don't think it's an accident that Franklin Roosevelt said that we would not have a fascist takeover in this country as long as democracy delivered on its blessings. When people are not free economically, when people are shackled by social and economic conditions, they ultimately become more vulnerable to um, ideological capture by some genuinely psychotic forces. And if you say to that person, oh, but if you go with them, you'll lose your political freedom, too often their response is, well, under your watch, as well as under theirs, I lost my economic freedom. So what can I do except go wherever I might possibly find surcease from my pain? Yeah, and, and I, I find that there's a disconnect, and I think this is a good time to bring it up. Uh, you had a conversation with Ryan Grimm uh, from The Intercept earlier this year. And in that conversation, there was a line of demarcation where um, Gen Z and millennials, younger Americans, seem to, um, seem to get the, the message. Um, they sort of understand the message and are ready to, I guess, be more radical about it. Where older Americans, even ones that would consider themselves progressive, seem to want it, seem to want this message packaged in a different way. They're they're very reluctant um, to to move on it. Is is that simply you know, is that simply the fact that younger Americans have more economic pressures and are feeling it more, or is it messaging? Um, how how, do, how are you taking how are you taking that? We've all been trained to be very intellectually lazy. We've all been trained to limit our political imaginations. We've lost our visceral connection to history. We've lost our visceral connection to what this whole thing means. And we have been, we we have allowed ourselves to accept and to digest these prepackaged narratives that come from political parties, come from political elite and political systems. Even when those narratives are contrary to everything we learned in the seventh grade, in a civics class, you know, I hear a lot of people about my about my campaign saying, oh, no, we can't split the vote. My God, this is politics 101A. It's a primary. You can't split the vote. Or when people say, oh, you just have to get behind Biden. Why? <laughs> you know, there's, there's no logic there. That's what primaries are for. So I, I think that many of us, as we get older, not in so much in our personal lives necessarily, but in terms of our collective political conversations have been trained to think very shallowly. I also think that younger people, you know, they're not 20th century creatures. They weren't even born there, or if they were born there, they were just babies for a while. And I, I meet young people, Gen Z and so forth, who don't understand. And and they're right. Why should they live their lives at the effect of bad economic ideas left over from the 20th century? They have no institutional memory of a time when the Democrats did anything more for them than the Republicans did. And so for the Republican Party to say, we just need to scold them into voting for us, that's not going to work. And I think a lot of older people and I understand this lore. We have a kind of nostalgic relationship to a Democratic Party that used to be. 
and um, you know the the legacy of Roosevelt, the the coattails of a time when we could validly think that no matter what, the Democrats were standing for the working people of the United States. Now, within the Democratic Party, there's a fissure. There are the, the corporatist Democrats, who are really what the Republicans were when I was growing up. And they try to have it both ways. They serve their corporate donor class, and then they try to help people when they can. And then you have the progressives who are standing, I think, trying to stand within that system for everything you and I are talking about. But somehow, for whatever reason, they get sucked in and really subtly threatened. If you, uh, for instance, in my case, stand for the actual progressive running for the Democratic nomination, I guess you lose Hakeem Jeffries' phone number. You lose uh, your seat on some committee. You become on the list of people that they might primary next time. Um, you definitely become seduced once you're in there. And that's why the only hope for us right now is for the people to intervene. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think, you know, while the argument is a good one, the system that you're uh, you're operating in is set up to keep those arguments out. Um, as you said, it's, it's you're not a political imagination is uh, is scary to a, a lot of people who have already uh, made their way to the seats of power. And so. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no question about that. You know, what's so interesting to me is how many people who have not made their way to the seats of power, they've got some, you know, it's like the Republicans offer crumbs. We all know that. But the corporatist Democrats offer cookies. You can't live on a cookie either. What right. power are some of these people protecting? So I, I'm not. if you look at the people, not just those who are in power who are protecting their power, but so many people who are enabling them voting for them over and over and over again, even though fundamental reform does not happen on their watch. What is it that they're protecting? It's, um, and and I have to tell you, I, I at this point, I even see among the so-called left in America, my, my experience on this campaign convinces me that many people who think of themselves as real leftists have no interest in actually accumulating political power. It's it's all a game. It's all an online circus. It's all a um, performance and brand protection, no differently than yeah. those that they most criticize. What I think I think there's a lot of truth to that. I wonder why that is. Is it just uh, you know to 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 have a brand and be online and say stuff online? Um, is it, why, why do you think that is? Because I, I kind of agree with you. I don't, I think when push comes to shove, a lot of people who say that they're leftists don't, they're not really, really. There is, um, but I can't, no, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. There is a progressive running for the democratic nomination for president. That is fact. Now they'll come up with, oh, I don't like her position on Ukraine, even though my position on Ukraine isn't even what they're projecting that it is. I'm not some neocon. If you actually look at what I would do, it's not that much different than what any, what they call the peace candidates would do. There has to be a negotiated settlement and the United States needs to passionately participate in in whatever way possible. Now, 
it doesn't seem to me that that's really it. It seems to me that there is an element of we want everything she's talking about, but we don't want her. Now, I really ask myself about that. Like, what? I didn't come in the same door you did. I'm a little older than you are. In some cases, I'm not. I didn't come in through the same movement door. I think there's a misogynistic element. I wonder sometimes if there's an anti-Semitic element. I don't know. I I wonder, but I do know this. If you're actually interested in gaining political leverage for the left, then you don't easily diminish the candidacy of an actual leftist running for the nomination. Even if you're a Cornell West supporter, who obviously is on the left, um, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about one is a primary, one is a general election. So, you know, I can, on some personal level, go into, oh, why don't they like me? But I know that they don't like me because of uh, things that don't, there's an irrational animus and I don't understand it. Is it that they think I'm a, really, I'm a kook? Really? I was like abusive to the people who work for me. Really? You really think that that, that you really, really, uh, maybe do some of your own investigation. Yeah. I, I, well, now's probably a good time to talk about it because Bernie got some of the same you know, like we're not, we're just not going that way. Now, was some of that anti-Semitic? Potentially. Um, the thing about Bernie, though, in comparison to say your campaign, I feel like Bernie's movement was really connected to some of the some of the what I would say are the real leftists on the ground, real organizing, um, some the bigger unions, um, the bigger environmental groups. Um, you know, and he was tied into groups, you know, like our revolution, which he started, um, even, even some with the working families party. So I think when I, I think he, he was able to do that. Um, and I think as for like a person like me who is going to vote for you in the primary is, can, is concerned that I don't see as much outreach to the, to some of the large organizations that would, help with that process of disseminating this information and building solidarity among the leftists who are actually out there and not doing it as a branding exercise. Are you under the impression that I have not tried? No. You actually, that was going to be my question is my, that, that was exactly my question. I, I see, I, and I know the people that you're working with too. So I, I, I assume that you had, and I'm wondering what, how how difficult have the inroads it's been? No, Why do you think that? Why do you think the inroads have been difficult? I am, in, I am invisibilized among many on the institutional left as much as I am invisibilized by MSNBC and CNN. A simply refusal to respond to my email, a refusal to respond to my phone call. You tell me, why are there environmental organizations endorsing Biden? This man has approved the Willow Project. This man has approved uh, more oil drilling permits than even Trump has done. This man is the overseer of an $858 billion defense budget when the U.S. defense uh, uh, establishment is the single largest uh, institutional emitter of greenhouse gases. When you say to them, why are you endorsing Biden? They respond, what else do we have? So it's invisibilizing me. Now, in terms of the institutional left, some of these organizations that you're talking about, they seem to take the attitude. There is almost the sense that because the DNC and the 
the machine has characterized me as a joke, as a crystal lady, or as a mean witch, that they seem to think that they will be, that some of that mud will, you know, will, will be thrown onto them. They're embarrassed. I have a lot of closet, closet support. Like, I, I support you, but I don't want anyone to know. It's quite, kind of extraordinary. So, and, and the other element is straight up brand protection. No differently than, than the capitalists that they say they criticize. It's extraordinary to me. That's what Stephen Dantego said to me. Uh, it's just not really my brand. My brand. I almost fell off. My so you're talking about Stephen Donzinger, the attorney who the one that I used to interview over and over and over again, the one that I used to write articles about over and over and over again, the one I used to put on my Instagram over and over and over again. Yeah. He's, he's sort of, uh, that's, that's, a, I, that's what, well, I mean, so what is the brand though? So what is that? What, what is the brand? You know, I, I is it simply well, that? Whatever the leftist perspective, that's what's fascinating to me, because the brand of some of these people who are like too cool to uh, have Miriam Williamson on their podcast, too cool. Like you say, there's been no outreach. There's been plenty of outreach. But, you know, if people won't and the brand somehow I know Emma Vigeland on on um, the majority report said, I like Marianne, but I, I think her campaign is her candidacy is overrated, overvalued. What the hell does that mean? Yeah, I don't you know what that means. One, you have one progressive running for the Democratic nomination. Now, let me say this. All that this is showing me is that my support comes from elsewhere. And it does, because I'll tell you something. Gen Z is not sitting here concerning themselves with what's happening in the scuttlebutt on the online left. That's not where they live in their hearts. And the people that I talk to, uh, I'm in Detroit right now. And I just came from Las Vegas. If if I'm talking to a, a group of nonprofit activists from an organization that's called Compassionate Cities, if I'm talking to young people who are in recovery from heroin, if I talk to people who are the formerly incarcerated who are trying to put their lives together, these are my people. If I'm talking to college students who have no, they have no health care and they have no prospects and they don't know how to get out from under the shackles of these college loans. They're not, they're not thinking about whether or not I'm being derided or mocked on Twitter. They are hearing someone talking about an economic bill of rights. They're hearing someone talking about universal health care. They're talking about someone talking about uh, canceling these college loans, talking about uh, tuition-free college and tech school, talking about free childcare, talking about a guaranteed living wage, talking about paid family leave, talking about canceling the Willow Project, talking about a mass mobilization, declaring a climate emergency for a shift from a dirty economy to a clean economy, about establishing a department of peace, a department of children and youth. There are people who hear that, and that's the issue. The issue is that when people hear me, I believe, I know, because I'm out on the ground right now, millions of people go, yes. But at this point, there are people within the, the ethers of the institutional left who are doing as much to block me. They're not doing it actively so much, although I've heard a few people say, oh, I wouldn't send her money. So there's a, there's a, a passive blockage there that is, in effect, no different than the 
uh, overt attacks that I get from the DNC establishment. And some of it is such an almost joke to me, except it's a sick joke, is how many people are vulnerable to all those machinations and false narratives uh, just because they're on Twitter, uh, but who probably think that they are too smart to buy anything so ridiculous. Yeah, this is probably a good time to bring this part of it up because I think the whole idea of a fringe candidate is is stupid. Um, it's very dangerous because it lets it, it's just basically gatekeeping. It's establishment gatekeeping. They can put a label on somebody and say this person's not qualified, or they have weird ideas, or they're fringe, or whatever. It's all that's that doesn't that's not a real thing. Um, but I think people are uncomfortable some with a, a, a sort of a spiritual outlook on politics or economics or or, or whatever it is. And I, and I used to be like that too, actually. Um, but then when I really got into it, like if, if the, the, the Mark Paul uh, passage that I just read about pain. Now, pain, very famous atheist, of course. Uh, however, you, you need to be able to have some sort of connection with everybody. You have to have a sense that, um, you know, there has to be some agrarian, there has to be some equality or else, you know, society is not going to advance. So to, to believe the things that Paine wrote all, while he didn't believe in a Christian God is extremely powerful spiritually because he's thinking about everybody, what everybody needs, what would be best for a society, how it should function. That's a, there, there has to be a spiritual uh, foundation for that. You have to be in touch with not just you know yourself and what you can do. And so I think people, I, I don't know how, how you go about explaining it when you're, when you talk about sort of, you know, you have a history of sort of spirituality and self-help and things like that. Um, but that's what this is really. You, you have to have some, some, uh, architecture there to build on top of, to even be able to do, to, to be able to fight for things like this, because it's, it's a, it's a feeling about other people and you can't have that feeling about other people unless you, you realize that there's something bigger out there than just what you're walking around. And yeah, I, I wonder what you, how you, how you square that with people or how you explain it to people because, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you get like the crystals and, you know, whatever, uh, you know, incense or whatever. I don't know what they say, but yeah, so I'm sure you, I mean, I, you, you have this conversation probably pretty often, so. There, the word crystal is not written in any of my 15 books and out of my thousands of lectures, no one is going to find me here the word uh, say the word crystal. It's all part of this ridiculous narrative. If you have a problem with the idea of spirituality and politics and their interface, then you would have a problem with Martin Luther King. And you would have a problem with the philosophy of um, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, both of which are the politicalization of spiritual values, and overtly so, articulated that way by them. You would have a problem with the candidacy of Reverend Al Sharpton having run for president. You would have a problem with Reverend Jesse Jackson having run for president. I didn't hear any of those criticisms about either of those men. I wonder what they have in common. I, I, have, an, I have an idea. I have um, an idea. Yeah. Yeah, I... I... I mean, the whole thing is absurd. For that matter, I want to say something else. Yes, please. The Declaration of Independence is as much a, a step forward in the moral evolution of the planet as it is in the political evolution of the planet, in much the way that Thomas Paine said in that quote that you were talking about earlier from Professor Paul. 
all men are created equal. My God, that is not a political statement, first of all. That is a spiritual statement. All men are created. Remember, there's that word creator. They use the word creator quite a bit, the founders. All men are created equal, endowed by their creator with inalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that these rights are spiritually, divinely ordained. This is not just the idea of, well, we think it ought to look like this. It was rather, it ought to look like that because that, i.e. political freedom, is the highest uh, reflection of that which is divinely ordained. So to separate, you know, this is kind of neo-Marxist, you know, over-secularization, I believe, of of the of the progressive perspective, which happened only recently when I was growing up, you couldn't separate a perspective, a progressive perspective from Martin Luther King, from the idea, this is what he said. He said the desegregation of the American South is the political externalization of the goal of the civil rights movement. But the ultimate goal is the establishment of the beloved community. Now, if I said that, everybody would scream about what a kook I am and how how unserious she is. Notice that my uh, that my colleague and my friend uh, Cornell West goes around calling everybody beloved brother, brother this, sister that. Is anybody complaining about him doing that? So there are constrictions here that that are completely artificial and are based on personal, almost an irrational animus. Uh, that has very little to do with the with, with the, the facts of the case here. If you look at every social justice movement in the history of the United States, every single one of them has been been founded on a on a among other pillars, a religious and spiritual one. Among white evangelicals, much of the evangel uh, much um, excuse me, among white abolitionists, much of the abolitionist movement emerged from the early evangelical churches in New Hampshire. In the women's suffrage movement, many of the leaders of the suffrage women's suffrage movement and why they were there was because they were religious Quakers. And Dr. King, could we please remember, was a Baptist preacher and did not put aside his his spiritual values or his religious values he his his politics were an extension of them and my politics were an extension of mine yeah i think that's beautifully put and and as from a from a marxist or a material perspective uh the thing we just talked about for the first 10 minutes of this conversation are all material issues um health care uh, jobs guarantee uh housing, uh, being being supported uh, and being comfortable in old age and being secure. You know, so the idea that this that this doesn't that there is a there's a spiritual line behind it uh, and then that there's a material sort of when the rubber hits the road seems pr- seems clear to me. Um, and, and I think that that's I, I don't know whether it's it's it, it scares people for some reason, as you said, it didn't used to. Um, I think you've convinced me that there's a lot more misogyny than I um, maybe care to admit. I think you're you're right about that. There's an um, irrational animus there. Yeah, pardon? There's an irrational animus there. Whatever yes. 
when it when it when it comes to some of the people's criticism, and there's another issue there. Um, there's a there's a phrase contempt prior to investigation. People who will opine about the ridiculousness of my books who haven't read my books, people who will opine about the lack of seriousness of my agenda who have not read my platform on my website. There's something. Um, this hostility for no reason, you know, it's like, yeah, my thing too is like, if you look when I was thinking about how to talk about this idea that this gatekeeping idea that somebody's fringe or that they're not, you know, they're, they've come in the back door or however you want to put it, like, when, when has that ever mattered? You know, Donald Trump is, is you know, is, is a, a phony. He's, he's fake. Um, he, no, no one, you know, no one says, you know, it, it's, it's a weird, it's, it, it is, it's odd to me that this conversation is had with certain people, but other people who actually really have no background have no, you know, have nothing Kennedy to say. never served in office. Cornell West never served in office. Right. Nobody's going on, but never, never served. They should run for Congress. None of that's going on. But, um, even more than that. This projection onto me that I haven't been as much of an activist as, as some of my critics have been. Who are they to hell to, to say that my activism has been less important or that I don't come from a movement? You know, I, I it's uh, but there's a strange I mean, I'm sort of just on a psychological level. There are so many people who even if you present them with facts to the contrary of their argument, it's almost like I have my story and I'm sticking to it. I don't know. I, um, I, uh, you know, we want to have radical goodwill towards everyone, but at a certain point you start naming what's really going on, not with defensiveness and not with blame, but if we're going to tell truth to power, there's some truth to power that needs to be spoken there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that there is, there's an aspect of, what do I want to call it? Sort of institutional, uh, institutional impetus or in institutional force that it's, I think people just jump on board the train. Um, this idea that somehow, you know, the incumbent Biden's a known quantity and yeah, he's not great, but that's, you, you can't, you can't do anything about it. Well, you can do something about it. You can do something about it. Well, not only that, I think in the last two or three weeks, there are cracks in that in, in that uh, foundation. That narrative is beginning to crumble. Something's happening. You know, when that conversation hits things like CNN and Morning Joe on MSNBC, that means the, those are signals that the establishment uh, is uh, is changing. Something is being telegraphed there. And um, there is a sense that given that with all, two impeachments and all those indictments, Biden still can't really break into a big lead over Donald Trump. You have to be ignorant not to recognize that there's a real problem there. So it's interesting. I don't know what they're going to do. I know one of the things they're working hard on, though, is to make sure that uh, neither Robert Kennedy nor myself um, are central to the conversation. They want to peripheralize us, to kick us out. And, um, you know, Bobby, you know, he's a Kennedy, he's a man, he's got a lot of money. So he can fight that more effectively than I have been 
able to. But even that's breaking. Things are breaking. You know, this is not a, well, first of all, American politics is not predictable. That's what makes it rather fascinating. But I think there's a, there's a crumb, there's a rumbling underneath the surface. There is a, there's a shift in the political dynamics in this country. And I don't think any, either major political party recognizes it because they are in their own bubble. But it it is going to break. It could break in different directions. And that's that's not good news because some of those directions would be quite dangerous and malevolent for our country. But I believe that one of the ways it could break is in a progressive direction, is in the direction of an agenda presented to the American people of a true uh, platform of economic reform, as in uh, a massive infusion of economic hope and opportunity to the average American and to the working people of the United States. The Democratic Party used to stand when you were asking why older people still buy in, because we have an institutional memory of a time when the the Democratic Party, far more often than not, stood unequivocally with the needs and the rights and aligned with the advocacy for the average working person in the United States. So I think I believe a candidacy who is offering that once again has inherent value, and uh, I'm in it to articulate that, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, I did want to point out something obvious um, that sort of proves your point. Um, there was an article earlier this week um, from the New Republic from Michael Tomaski, I think is his name, and uh, this is the headline: Biden campaign needs a dramatic gesture. Called it a gesture, which I think is funny. So here's a thought. The thought is, and I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll give you a little, uh, <laughs> a little spoiler alert. The thought is a 21st century economic bill of rights. What's interesting in the article about this gesture is that it's never mentioned anywhere that there's a candidate running on that very same de- domestic economic platform. Mm-hmm. So. That that's that's I'm that's fucking strange. Not only that, when our mutual friend Harvey K um pointed that out to him, his response was something like, Oh, really? Right, Marianne Williamson. You know, that's another thing I have to say. What happened to at least pretending to have a feminist bone in your body? What happened to at least pretending that you're not gonna mock or diminish a woman? It's, it's like all it's like everybody can just say anything or do anything all of a sudden. It's very strange. Um, <laughs> we're all feministic. It's so odd. Yes, just invisibilized diminished. Oh, Marianne Williamson. Really? Yeah. As though he has ever read my platform or talked to me or heard my heard me at all. You're right. You're right. Yeah. And 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 smugness, the arrogance, the we used to call that male chauvinism. <laughs> In fact, we used to we used to use the phrase "male chauvinist pig." You're not allowed to say any of that anymore. But look, uh, I'm 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 old enough to remember that myself. Um, and 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 yeah, it was more obvious. And I think now people don't they've they've sort of backburnered it, and that they, they don't see it all the time. I mean, you look at Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy is Bobby Kennedy is 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 making some outrageous sort of. I would say the things that Bobby Kennedy has, has said over the last year are far more kooky than anything I can imagine on the 21st century Bill of Rights. Okay, some things that Kamala Harris has said over the last year are far more kooky than anything. Fair enough. Yeah, that's, I mean, you're not you're not wrong about that either. You and know, so, yeah, people have... sense out of context that anyone has ever said and embellished that with a lot of lies and smears and created quite a 
character assassination. But also what they do now with women is if you even mention, if you challenge any misogynist anything, they say, oh, now you're playing the gender card. Now you're playing the gender card. Now you're playing victim. No, you're not playing victim. You're playing truth teller. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting to me, too, you mentioned before, because it's something that came up in sort of our editorial discussions and uh, in, in putting some of the stuff together that we wanted to talk about. Um, and you mentioned it before, so I'll bring it up. I'm not really interested in rumors about how, like, what you do with your staff or, you know, you yelled at somebody or you didn't yell at somebody or somebody's mad. I, I, I actually don't really care about that. But I, it is interesting when I started to think about people who get that criticism or something leaks about how their behavior is as a boss. It's almost always women. Yeah, absolutely. Like women can't, women, you know, if, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, Klobuchar. A man uses the F word at the office, you know, nobody even notices it. Yeah, it, it is, it's very, people should be on the lookout for that because when people talk about um, that kind of behavior, they're usually critiquing a woman they don't know. Um, so yeah, that's pretty interesting. Well, on my last campaign, I did use the F word too often, not at people, but in the presence of people. And I, you know, I was, you know, the proverbial bitch at the office a bit, not not nearly uh, to the extent that is that is portrayed. But in this last situation, you have seven people who worked in this campaign who put out a letter with just these outrageous comments. And I will tell you this. If any of those people were in a court of law and had to speak under oath and were asked, did you yourself ever have a crossword with Miss Williamson? Not one of them could say yes. Not one of them. And then one of them, Mr. Elmwood, uh, put a whole thing on the internet, which astonishingly and absurdly has become a narrative that has actually caught fire, that I'm only doing this to be on a book tour. So my question is, well, what book is that? And my second is, this gentleman knows absolutely nothing about book publishing. If you're going on a book tour, I know about book tours. I've been on a lot of book tours. A presidential campaign is not a book tour. And the other one was this business about we're not going after ballot access, which is equally absurd. Well, will you, I mean, what's what's the ballot access uh, what happened there? situation what happened now? There? Yeah. So, well, listen, it costs a lot of money. So what you do is some of them, some states, you can only do it with money. Some states, you can only do it with signatures. And then a few, you you have a choice. I'm not, I'm maybe even just one or two have a choice. So for instance, I went to, Vic, uh, to Vermont to get signatures. I'm going to Maine next week to get signatures. Some of them early, it's only July. This gentleman saying we weren't interested in ballot access. He was let go. Um, and what he was doing was project managing the ballot access. Now, remember the people who would behave this way after they leave an organization were the same people when they were in the organization. So I don't know how anyone is like doubting uh, the need to move on in certain cases. Now, there is a company that helped us with ballot access last time. And going with a company who does this professionally is a better route to go. It wasn't an, an issue last time. It's not an issue this time. It's simply, it's, it's like walking into a restaurant and wondering if they have permits. Of course they have to have permits or they couldn't have opened or they would be closed. And the same is true with ballot access. So 
you know, by by fall, you know, once you're getting into early, like, you know, October, and we, you know, you have to do it. It's simply something you have to do and that we are doing. And there is no evidence other than his his tweet. And in his case, it wasn't even anonymous that we are not doing it. And he lost his job. And uh, I'm sorry. I hope that he will uh, have a, you know, find his way, but mm. it won't come through. That kind of lying and lack of integrity, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Well, I want to hit some, you, you mentioned one, but I want to get a little further into it and hit some foreign policy pieces because you and I, uh, on, the, on, the, on the domestic economic stuff, I think there's no question, um, you know, where we're at. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm all aboard that. Um, you, you made a comment, I took a note of it, about d- generally describing U.S. foreign policy as a lot of cowboy stuff. Which I thought was pretty. Which I thought was was a very was very well put. Um, my, I'm going to call it a concern, but I think what a lot of what a lot of the cowboys in the foreign policy realm and in the the blob, so to speak, uh, are are ramping up against China. Uh, and what the Chinese are doing, and what we would have to do, you know, if we're doing this for Ukraine and protecting them, are we going to have to do the same for Taiwan uh, and, and some other time? And there's a buildup, uh, you know, in 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 that in that area and in, in the in the in the Pacific Rim. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you how you take um, our relationship with China, whether it, the economic relationship as well as just sort of on the world stage and, and militarily, where where your head's at? Well, we know that uh, one of the unfortunate circumstances that led to the uh, Ukraine-Russia war is that the United States did poke the bear. We did. I've never said that we didn't. And it concerns me to see the United States poking the bear of China. We should not be doing that. We should be far more careful. We should not be behaving in any way militarily that can be perceived by them as menacing. There must not be war with China. There will never be. Certainly, if I'm president, there will never be boots on the ground in Taiwan. That's simply not what can happen. Now, economically, we need to have a a positive relationship with China. Um, We're going to need to collaborate with China on climate change. We're going to need to collaborate with China on probably AI. And we're not going to need to collaborate with China on the issue of nuclear uh, abolition and non-proliferation and eradication. So we cannot afford to be behaving in any way that is perceived militarily as menacing to China. My my deepest concern about China, of course, has to do with fentanyl, has to do with their willingness to create, to manufacture the precursor chemicals. Um, When they were sending it into the United States, actually, it was Donald Trump who said, don't you dare, started threatening sanctions. And they're not stupid. They went, oh, okay. They pulled back from that and they started sending it to Mexico and the drug cartels. That's, um, that infuriates me. But, you know, the answer to that is not military confrontation, God knows. Yeah, the, the answer to the drug problem um, is certainly not going to come at the tip of a gun. 
I, I don't. No, absolutely not. And I think that one of the things that that we should do is to uh, dismantle the war on drugs. It does more to exacerbate the situation than it does to heal it. It was artificially created by Richard Nixon to begin with. Uh, John Ehrlichman, when he got out of prison, sort of spilled all the beans, made it clear that Nixon knew it wasn't public enemy number one, the way he said it was. It was uh, an insidious attack on people of color in this country. Uh, We spent over a trillion dollars. We spend over a hundred billion now And for a fraction of that money, we could establish a far more powerful and um, effective network of recovery situations. We can begin to see drugs as a health issue rather than a criminal issue. Half the people in federal prison are there for nonviolent drug offenses. This is a way to dismantle the prison industrial complex, let these people out, legalize drugs, and... um, uh, regulate them. Now, having said that, I realize we've, we 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 segued a little bit away from the other foreign policy issue with China. But to me, fentanyl is very much uh, to me that is central. I mean, that is, I'm afraid to say, an undeclared war on the United States. Yeah, and I think you 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 alluded to it, but I'll just make it clear. And you you also mentioned sort of your position in the Ukraine Russia situation too. And I think they're they're both correct. I mean, we're very provocative. We have bases all around the Pacific Rim, basically surrounding China. Um, we've we've pushed NATO right up against um, right up against the Russian border. And and then, you know, we make all of these provocative moves and then sort of throw our arms up and like, why, why, are, why are we at the brink of war? Well, we're on the doorstep. You know, if I, the, the way I always sort of describe it is that, you know, if China decided to, to make a, to, a deep water port and Navy base, uh, you know, on the Yucatan with Mexico, I think, you know, we would lose our collective minds. Uh, but we do that everywhere. <laughs> we do that everywhere in the world. Uh, to me, that is not a perfect analogy, however. And that was okay. Yeah, let's let's talk about it. Because NATO is a is a defensive is a defensive rather than offensive operation. And I also don't. Th- I think that that the uh, many in this country, I'm not. I'm not underestimating the power of the United States and all of these decisions. But I am pointing out there is this thing called Europe. There are countries called Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Sweden, Finland. Finland did not wish to be uh, a part of NATO for decades. They remained neutral, and now they do. So this is another thing to consider. You, people talk in this country too often, for my taste, about, about the Ukraine-Russia issue as though there are only three actors here. And there are not only three actors here, Russia, the United States, Ukraine. There's a lot more than that going on. And so I... I personally feel that a lot of the um, criticisms on the far left and the far right present a kind of simplistic notion of what would fix this. Because if we simply let go, um, that will be, believe me, that will not be a peaceful uh, resolution to this situation. What Russia will then do will be anything but peaceful. And to say that that will be destabilizing in in the rest of Europe is an understatement. So uh, obviously we need we need negotiated settlement. That's the only answer to this. And the United States should be participating uh, vigorously in those negotiations. There was a meeting in Saudi Arabia about three weeks ago. China was there. Brazil was there. India was there. The United States was there. The only answer was going to be an international conclave uh, that brings these two to the table. And of course, I believe the United States should be part of that. 
Okay. La- last foreign policy question. Um, it's I'll save the worst one for last. Um, the Palestinian question, and in, and in Israel, um, we see a resurgent uh, far right uh, wave uh, in in Israel. Um, even moderates who sort of support the occupation of the occupied territories in the West Bank are sort of complaining about democracy because they're trying to the way their constitution is. They can they can take some shortcuts. Um, well, the point is they don't actually have a constitution. Correct. Yes. The way that they're, yes, they don't have a constitution, so they can take shortcuts um, to, you know, without checks and balances that we would have in a constitution to be able to further this sort of right wing um, occupation and push. You know, it's gone on, you know, decades, um, but it just seems to have gotten worse here in the last five years. And so I wonder, I wonder what your take on it is uh, and, and what you think. What you think, if, if, if you think that there's an opportunity to do anything at this point there? Well, there is. The, this is the most far-right government that Israel has ever had. Um, and what you're referring to uh, just a moment ago has to do with the fact that Netanyahu and his far-right-wing forces are trying to strip uh, the Supreme Court of their power. And their power was the only break. It was the only check on, on Netanyahu's uh, movement. So many people, you know, something like 100,000 people were on the streets of Tel Aviv um, protesting this because this is not only bad for Arabs, it's also bad for Jews. So uh, obviously many people in Israel are up in arms about that. But obviously the question goes deeper. The occupation is illegal. International law does not give you the opportunity uh, or the permission to occupy territory like that for decade after decade after decade. This stuff started back in the late 60s. You cannot do this. The settlements, they are illegal according to international law. The blockade of Gaza is wrong. It is wrong. This is not a sustainable status quo. And I think that they're actually, to be honest, I think that the strategy of the far right in Israel is to make it a sustainable a status quo. But as they say in the Black Lives Movement matter here, no justice, no peace. There is no military solution here. The only solution is justice. So a lot of people wonder about the military aid that we give to Israel. This was an act of Congress back during Obama's time, actually, uh, to give what is now a $3.8 billion um, military aid to Israel. That can only be repealed through an act of Congress. Otherwise, it is given according to a memorandum of understanding until the year 2028. Now, what can the U.S. president do about this? What would I do about this? Even though without Congress, I couldn't just withhold the aid, what I could do and what I will do immediately if elected president is to demand that none of that money given as aid by the United States goes in any way to support uh, acts of transgression as we would define them against the human rights of any people. That would mean basically anything that has to do with any kind of military activity uh, in the West Bank, uh, anything that is support for settlements, uh, blockade against Gaza, etc. And I would do that. Yeah, I, I'm I'm discouraged every time uh, there's a flashpoint um, because we, as you stated, a, a lot of this would have to come from Congress. That, uh, you know, even when and, and we're both old enough to remember um, the campaign against apartheid in South Africa and what it was like and how they were, 
you know, went from being, you know, a, a tool against communism to a pariah nation. We all remember that, uh, at least as, if, if you're of a certain age, you remember. And I, I see some of the same things happening, and I, I, I'm not asking you to comment on it, but I consider it apartheid based on what the definition of apartheid is, a, a separate set of rules for people, a separate set of movements being able to be kicked out, uh, different laws within different territories. So, you know, that's just what it is. And if, if we can't even come to an agreement on that the settlements are illegal or that, you know, that they have two, uh, two, sets, of, two sets of laws uh, for two sets of people in two separate places, then, you know, I, I'm, I'm very, it's very discouraging to think that, um, you know, we're going to turn that around in enough time where, you know, there's, uh, you know, sort of a, a genocide happening or a cleansing happening of a place um, and we're just watching it sort of idly. You and I are, with everything that you just said, close enough in agreement until you said genocide and ethnic cleansing. It is not yeah. genocide or ethnic cleansing. It is systemic injustice. There is no doubt about that. It is oppression. There is no doubt about that. Um, I, I I strongly reject the the words ethnic cleansing and genocide. That's fair. Yeah, I, I guess I'm using it because I, I when you go into a uh, you know a village or or, or 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 a place where Palestinian Arabs are living, and you throw them out of their homes uh, forcibly, uh, or and you raise their farms and you raise their homes, and then you build homes for settlers and defend them with the army. That is oppressive. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. To close, I guess, um, I want to give you an opportunity to sort of like just talk again about the, 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 the platform, the domestic economic platform, because a fair wage, good housing, free education, health care, a clean environment, security and safety and retirement. These things are very popular, you know, when they're polled. They always have been really, going back into the, the New Deal time. And, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, that's the interesting thing, I believe. My agenda is the one that aligns with the uh, express will of the American people. The, um, the majority of Republicans, as well as Democrats, want universal health care. The majority of Republicans, as well as Democrats, want tuition-free college and tech school. The majority of, um, of Americans, Republican as well as Democrats, including gun owners, want universal background checks and common sense gun safety laws. The problem is not the American people. The problem is this chlorotic and corrupt political system, which time and time again does more to serve the goal of short-term profit maximization for their corporate donors than to serve the goal of health, safety, and well-being of the American people, even when those goals are expressly um, are, 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 are expressed in very clear ways by legislators' constituents themselves. That, that's the problem that we have. And so it is ridiculous at this point for us to assume that if we keep voting for a status quo politician, that things will fundamentally change, just like uh, Biden said they wouldn't fundamentally change. Every other advanced democracy has universal health care. The only reason we don't is not because it's complicated, but because the situation is so corrupt. It's only the greed of the insurance companies that is keeping us from having universal health care. We have 1.3 million Americans who um, 
who ration their insulin. This does not happen in any other advanced democracy. We have one in four Americans living um, uh, with medical debt. As far as tuition-free college and tech school, we had that here until the 1970s. We had uh, it University of Florida system, Texas, and California. One could get that world-class higher education for $50 uh, a semester. There are Americans, the majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. The majority of Americans could not afford to absorb a $400 unexpected expenditure. Half of our of our seniors are living on $25,000 and less a year. 600,000 are homeless. Young people can't even find a place to live because BlackRock and Vanguard and other real estate companies are commodifying housing. So these small incremental approaches, you know, you were talking about a guaranteed um, living wage. We still have a a minimum wage of $7.25. Now, Biden had had uh, campaigned on lifting it to 15, and even 15 today, you have one third of American workers living on less than $15 an hour, and half of them cannot find a place to live. In most, in the large American cities, the living wage is way over $20. It's up to 22, 24, 25. So part of the Economic Bill of Rights is a guaranteed living wage. And I'm sorry, you know, Biden, we, the Democrats had the House, they had the Senate, and they had the White House in the first two years of his administration. So he had lifted the uh, minimum wage for federal workers to $15 an hour. And then when it came to putting it into the COVID relief bill so that it became the floor universally, he was stopped by the parliamentarian. And I think it's important for everybody to realize that no Republican would allow themselves to be stopped by the parliamentarian. When the parliamentarian challenged George Bush, he fired the parliamentarian. That person is not an elected representative and has no real political power. Same with the child, uh, um, the, um, uh, child tax credit, which, yes, is true, cut child poverty in half, but only for six months, and then they didn't permanentize the tax credit. So this idea that if we continue to elect the status quo, that there will be any fundamental economic reform, I think we should all open our eyes and realize that no fundamental economic reform is coming from them, because corporate, a matrix of corporate power, basically has Congress in its grip, uh, as long as we continue to elect one of them, also has the White House in its grip. And uh, this is tyranny at this point. And um, it's, we're no different. It's simply our turn now. We, you know, we, our ancestors pushed back slavery, our ancestors pushed back the institutional suppression of women, our ancestors pushed back the Gilded Age with the establishment of organized labor, our ancestors pushed back against the forces of segregation with the civil rights movement, and it's our turn now. This is time to be courageous, and it's time to be brave, and uh, it's not the time to be petty, and it's not the time to be immature, and it's not the time to be silly. It's time to be brave. Marianne Williamson, thank you so much. I, I, I couldn't have couldn't have closed it better myself. Um, as I said, I think everybody needs to come to grips with if 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 if, if these are the things people want, and these are the things that you want. And, and you have an understanding that this is going to make us a stronger country, a stronger society, a stronger culture. Um, this is the direction we need to be going in. And we can't get bogged down with um, pettiness um, or gossip um, or, you know, what we, what we think we should be doing. We need to keep our eye um, squarely on 
on forward, and this is the only way we're going to get forward. I think you made that. I, I think that's perfectly clear, and, and you've made that clear. I agree. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I know you're incredibly busy, um, but I, I'm, I have fingers crossed that as, as, as you said, we're, we're seeing it already. Some, some cracks in the armor um, of the administration, and as much as they would like to ignore your candidacy, I don't know how long they can do it. And I hope that we're able to exploit some of those cracks and get in there and, and, and really make this, this argument. You know, I think that at the end of the day, there, while there is um, misogyny and um, male chauvinism and all kinds of chauvinism, I think really people are scared of any kind of, um, any kind of change. But this is exactly what we need. This is time to be brave. Uh, we need to be brave and we need to keep our eye on the ball. So... Thank you. Thank you again. I, I really appreciate um, you taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you having me on. Great. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, everybody. Left is best. <laughs>